This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for being with us on this week's podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can subscribe to get brand new episodes every Thursday. This week, we're exploring the life and legacy of Derek Jarman, the filmmaker, artist and activist who died 30 years ago and who was commemorated in 2019 by a London Blue Plaque. Helping uncover his story is senior historian for the Blue Plaque scheme, Howard Spencer, and writer and performer, Mark Farrelly. Hello, Charles. Hello. So for people who aren't familiar with Derek Jarman's life and work, who was he and what did he do, Howard? Well, shall we start with the blue plaque inscription, blue plaque that went up almost exactly five years ago on the 25th anniversary of Derek Jarman's death. The descriptor given to him on there is filmmaker, artist and gay rights activist. So that kind of tells you in a nutshell what he did. It was a very difficult inscription to devise just because he did so much. He was also a writer, a gardener, a theatre designer, that that could have gone on there too, but we're limited to um, 20 words and also limited by visibility. So that gives you it in a nutshell. Born in 1942, died 1994. So it's uh, the hook for this talking about him today really is that it's now 30 years since he died on the 19th of February 1994. And astonishingly, he would have turned 82 on the 31st of January. You mentioned, Howard, about the... um the various job titles that he's got on the blue plaque. Is that quite unusual to have three sort of job titles uh, on a blue plaque? Well, we like to keep it punchy, but yeah, three is okay. I think we probably haven't ever gone uh, much further than that. I should say that, I mean, the the first one is probably the most important filmmaker, arguably the most important, but we'll we'll come back to that. And I guess we'll name some of the films that he's, he's known for, Caravaggio, Jubilee and Sebastian, probably the the, uh, best known, highest profile films that he made in the uh, 1980s and 90s. And how do you describe Derek Jarman, Mark? Do you have a unique interpretation on his life? I'm not sure it's unique, but I would call him a Renaissance man in the sense that he turned his hand to so many disciplines. A lot of people might know him from his cottage in Dungeness, Prospect Cottage, and the garden that he constructed there against the odds out of the shingle. And he had a wonderful phrase about it. He said, there are no walls because my garden's boundaries are the horizon. Oh, wow. (laughs) That sense of having no boundaries pervades the whole of his 52-year lifespan. So some people, as Howard says, may know him and love him best for his film work, 
There are lots of people who love him for his painting, people who love him for his writing. I'm a huge devotee of pretty much everything that he wrote. And yes, he's, um, he's that rare beast who was so good at so many things. We sometimes talk about being a jack of all trade, master of none, but Derek was so talented and so prolific across so many fields. So I love the fact that Howard and his colleagues struggled <laughs> to work out what to put on a blue plaque because uh, rightly so. Artist is a very broad description, but I think it also does him justice because art can be found in very many areas, can't it? It can be film art, it can be set design, as you say, other types of visual art. or Yes, and that your your whole life is a work of art if you choose to make it so. And again, I think Derek is a, a shining and inspiring example of that. And speaking of art, Mark, you're touring the country this year with a one-man show about Derek Jarman. So how would you describe that art? <laughs> well, I hope that it is an encounter with his spirit. It's a very spare and bare 80-minute one-man piece. Spare in the sense that all I have on stage is a plastic chair, a roll of brown paper, a torch and a white bedsheet. And out of those elements, I have to create all the key external and internal moments of his life. And we did that because that was really Derek's modus operandi, that he liked to work with whatever was to hand, found objects. Again, just adverting back to the garden at Dungeness, it's filled with bits of shingle and driftwood and, and objects, tide rack that he's found on the beach. And... We wanted to make something that, that had the feel of being um, really sort of made up on the spot. Of course, the art is the concealed art, and there is a very clear structure and script, which is brimming with a lot of the best of Derek's words. But it has a somewhat improvised and immersive feel to it. So one of the joys for me every night is that it's always slightly different, and it's one of the most rewarding experiences I've had in my career playing him. You're obviously um, a big fan of, of Jarman. Why did you want to take on him in particular as someone to explore on stage for well, people to look at? Yes, it's interesting, this idea about me being a fan. I mean, yes and no. I'd never met him. And although I knew of him, I only really came to his work a few years ago. What happened, and I think this happened for a lot of people in this country, is that when they really got to know him or hear about him in the 80s through the tabloids, the newspapers, and I don't think this is too strong a word, really demonised him, made him seem like quite a frightening figure. You know, that, that word that keeps coming up, controversial. And then in tandem with that, when he became very ill and he didn't conceal that he was ill and there were a lot of pictures of him looking very at death's door, which he was, and so I really, and I think I wasn't alone, kind of pushed him out of my mind and thought, this is, this is too much for me to deal with, and I don't want to know about it. And I'm an inveterate diary reader, but I wouldn't touch Derek Jarman's diaries. He wrote two volumes of diaries. They're called Modern Nature and Smiling in Slow Motion. And they cover the last five years of his life. And I thought, I don't want to read that because this is the story of someone who is dying of AIDS. And that's going to be highly depressing. But for whatever reason, about five years ago, I picked them up and read them. And more fooled me because they were the complete opposite of what I was expecting. 
They're joyful. They're witty. Of course, there is darkness there, but they are so uplifting and inspiring. And I thought, well, I want to get that out there because he's one of the few artists whose work I've read and thought, I need to do better. I need to try harder. I need to make more art. And I wanted to share that with people. I'm sure it's not a spoiler alert if I say that one of the last lines of my piece about him, which is called Jarman, but one of the last lines is, is a line of Derek's. And he says, may you of a better future go and love without a care. And the, the message of it really is, what about you? I've lived my life. You've seen it. Where are you now? What are you going to do? And one of the just other things I would say about, you know, making it a solo show is that I think I wanted to reflect something that I feel and that I'm sure that Derek felt and maybe we all feel, which is that ultimately we are all alone in life. If our life is a movie, then there's only us who are in every single scene. We have lots of guest stars and cameos, but only we know what it's like to be in every bit of it. Only you, only Howard, only I, only our listeners know what it's like to truly be themselves. And Derek, I think, really understood that. There's, um, again, a scene in the play where I do the rap party at the end of his film Caravaggio, and suddenly the music melts away, and Derek says, it's funny, I'm an outsider at my own party. So although he was a great gatherer together of people and really a host of so many artistic projects and such a wonderful collaborator. There's a solitary nature to him, as there is to all of us. And I wanted to capture some of that as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. Quite sort of motivational words as we're sort of recording in January to sort of imagine your future self and to not care about and just to be happy uh, into the future. I think yes. that's a very poignant thing to sort of bear in mind as, at the time that we're recording. Um, yes. Speaking of early times in, in calendars, I suppose, um, Howard, if we talk a bit about Derek Jarman's early life and his family background and where he grew up, could you give us a few points on, on what that was like? Yeah, sure. Well, he was born, he's a child of the London suburbs, really, the outer London suburbs, the part that was called Middlesex at the time he was born in 1942 specifically born in, in Pinner Hills, and the family at that point were living in Northwood. But it was a, a very itinerant childhood because his father, Lance, was in the RAF, rose to be a, a wing commander. So they were, they were kind of all over the place, including Karachi in uh, what's now Pakistan. They were in Italy for a while, uh, Lake Maggiore, I think, they were, they were next to that. Mostly in England, though, in, in sort of Midland counties. They were in Oxfordshire, they were in Cambridgeshire for a bit, close to various RAF bases. For a while, they lived in the manor house of a Somerset um, village called Curry Mallet. So the family moved around a lot. Jarman, meanwhile, is sent to, first of all, a prep school in Hampshire, and then a boarding school just over the border in Dorset called Canford which, uh, according to his sister, he hated because it was it was a fairly standard boarding school at the time, as in he was forced to do things like boxing, which were not really his thing. He had one particular teacher who encouraged his interests more, but it was it was not a great time for him, I don't think. And how did he take his early experiences at school and in family life and start appreciating and, and making films? 
I think you can see, possibly see evidence of where he was in the early life in some of the appreciation of landscapes because you get some beautifully shot stuff. He always took a rather painterly approach. I mean, I haven't finished the story of his, of his education. His his father thought it would be a good idea for him to do a general arts degree, which he did. And I think that was probably something he was grateful to his, his father for. Uh, his father was a slightly remote figure, but on the whole, a benign one. He's much closer to his mother, Betts. But having done this general arts degree, he then passed on to the Slade Art School. So that's how he got into the painting. He brought the painterly approach to his filmmaking. And he also, first of all, and Mark will be able to talk about this more, more learnedly than I, but he, he got into theatre design. I think that was, in, in a sense, that was first. I mean, his first film, I believe, was, was a film called Electric Fairy, made in 1970. Mark, is that right? You're absolutely right, yes. So Derek, by this stage of his life, is living in a sort of artist's commune at Bankside in London. As was so often the way in Derek's life, somebody just happened to come along and in this instance put a Super 8 film camera into his hand, which was, I think, you know, we should remember probably very, very liberating at the time, that, that you didn't have to be part of a big studio to make a film, that you could do it yourself. And yes, Electric Fairy was one of over 100 short films that Derek made over the next, I think, 20 years. But the biggest concentration of them was in the early 1970s. And that fed into him making feature films, starting with uh, Sebastian in the mid-1970s. So yes, I was just trying to work out with this Super 8 technology which is obviously a film, film, actual film camera, as, as it would be, what sort of decade was he starting to work with with this medium yeah so super 8 yeah it was a, a lightweight handheld film camera and he started making those films in i think about 1970 and would rope in any passing friends who wanted to be in them and he was experimenting he was exploring and some of them are absolutely wonderful to watch and they're very very dreamlike and stream of conscious he's he's experimenting with very unusual editing techniques and all of those qualities you can see writ large in the feature films that he goes on to make and when you say short films how how short or how long were they yeah they could be anything between about three minutes and half an hour i think one of the most famous ones and a good starting point for beginners is a film called in the shadow of the sun which is 30 minutes long. I think it was made in 1973 or four. And that really captures those days of him living at Bankside. It was freezing cold in there. So he built a greenhouse in the middle of the space and used that as his bedroom and just had enormous freedom. As Howard was saying, he had, like so many of that generation, a pretty restrictive upbringing. And you see him breaking out of that so beautifully in the 1970s. And what's the subject matter of these short films? Is it about love or is it about sights in London or what is it? All of those, but I think it's about capturing the moment. They are in many ways themeless. They're about what happened that particular day. Derek is so brilliant at just living and so many of us are so bloody awful at it <laughs> that our life whizzes by and we weren't really in it at all we were just a specter at it really and Derek is very much in the moment so 
you might find some of them when you watch them initially a bit frustrating. You think, well, what's happening? Where is this going? But he's just not feeling bound by conventional narrative at all. He had this wonderful phrase that, you know, he said, life's more fun when you don't know what's coming next. Hmm. So it was really whatever was happening that day, whoever turned up and whatever mood took him, they're hugely impressionistic. And I think certainly when I saw a few of them when I was a teenager, I, I hated them because I didn't understand them. But I hated a lot of art when I was a teenager. Now, of course, I understand it completely. <laughs> So still quite experimental then, even though he'd probably done a few of these. It was just getting to know the medium, I suppose, and just exploring and experimenting with it. Absolutely. It's, it's discovery. It's a child with a new toy. He made great use of techniques like refilming, didn't he? Where basically you take one film and you refilm it to get a sort of blurry, painterly sort of effect. So he was kind of a technical innovator as well. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. Howard, you've mentioned a, a couple of techniques. Are, are there any other pioneering or just interesting techniques that Derek Jarman used in these short films? Well, I think he sort of, he was a bit old to be a punk, but he sort of brought a punk ethos to it. Very much DIY, get up and do it. Is that a fair comment, Mark? Yeah, I completely agree with that. Yes, he, he, he was part of that. Although, as you said, he wasn't a punk. He, he was of that time of, let's just do it. Anyone can do it. And that's hugely inspiring. I mean, sometimes like all artists, you know, Derek doesn't quite hit the mark, but he never stops trying. He never stops creating. And that I think is a, a hugely uplifting thing about him. As he goes on through his career, obviously he develops his skills, develops his um, style and he attracts other people to work with him. So who are some of the notable people that we might know today who appear in Derek Jarman's films? Well, I mentioned the punk connection and there are, there are quite a few who were sort of involved in that particular movement in one way or another who, who were also worked with him. Toya is in Jubilee. Toya Wilcox. And Toya Wilcox, that's right, yeah. And I think there are, there's a sort of appearance, fairly brief appearance by Susie Sue. Gene October from uh, Chelsea, he appears in a couple of films. And other than that, I suppose the best known association is possibly with Tilda Swinton who became his muse a bit later on and then you've got Sheffield's finest Sean Bean in the early part of his career starred in Jarman's films and um, there's the blue plaque recipient Elizabeth Welch who um, sang Stormy Weather in uh, I've forgotten which film that's in <laughs> uh, that's the end of the Tempest Derek's third feature film and that was made in 1979 Thank and we you. did an episode on her actually um, quite a while back now. So if you go back into the archive and search uh, those, you should be able to find Elizabeth Welch mentioned. Yes, uh, some pop stars as well, I understand. Yeah, Derek, you know, he sort of called it a sideline, but he made a lot of pop videos in the 80s. I mean, he worked with Marianne Faithful, the Smiths, Mark Armand. I think a lot of people probably know certainly one of the two videos he made for the Pet Shop Boys, It's a Sin, as well as 
designing their whole world tour in 1989. It's interesting that it's a sin video because Derek was given quite a substantial budget for that. <laughs> <laughs> he finally had some money to play with. And I think actually he was very proud of it and said it was one of the best things that he did. And it is a, a wonderful landmark in 80s pop, that video. So really, I think you only have to throw a rock and you'll hit somebody who worked with Derek because he touched so many lives. And if he didn't work with them directly, he often inspired them. The British film director Ken Russell is uh, a name that pops up as well, isn't it? There is indeed a very strong Ken Russell connection with Derek because one of Derek's first jobs was designing the sets for Ken Russell's film The Devils in 1970. Derek was on a train happened to get into conversation with someone who said oh well i'm i work for ken russell i could show him some of your art ken russell rings derek up says come and show me what you got 10 minutes later derek's got the job designing the devils two really interesting notes on that one is that i think that way of getting people involved in a project is something that derek carried through for the rest of his career so for example in the mid-80s, an unknown design student rang him up and said, hello, I'm just out of design school. I, I want to get into costume design for movies. He invites her around, looks at her drawings and says, okay, I'm making this film, Caravaggio, you're designing it. And that was Sandy Powell, who is now a multi-Oscar winner for her design work. Wow. That's a vote, the, yeah, absolutely. That's a of confidence, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it just? And the other thing I think is interesting about Derek's connection with Ken Russell is that if you can watch The Devils, and I, I, I do say that because it's a very tough watch. <laughs> I've seen it once and that was enough for me But because it's a very, very dark film. But Derek's designs are extraordinary, like nothing else I've ever seen in any other film. And it's a bit of a shame that he didn't do any more design. But the reason he didn't, I think, is that he didn't want to be part of the studio system, a cog in someone else's machine. Like, like all great artists, he wanted to build his own world. And that's what he went off and did. But I think he, he has that experience in The Devils to thank for that because it taught him as much as what he was, it taught him what he also was not. Of course, with all this production and cultural and creative output, he becomes part of film history. But was he also interested in history itself? Because obviously the English Heritage Podcast is a history podcast. Um, so was he interested in the sorts of things that um, people are interested in when they're interested in history? Oh, yeah, he was he was very uh, interested in London architecture. Apparently, he was, I think I read that he was exhaustive and exhausting in his knowledge of London architecture. And he also made a short film just on the English heritage theme of the stones at Avebury in Wiltshire, which is very beautiful. And we should say that these short films, a lot of them are actually on YouTube, so anybody can watch them. Mm. Um there's a guy at the Tate who's been going through them for years and curating them, and they're magnificent and, and they're actually they're very watchable. Mark's talked about how some of the output is incredibly dark and a bit uh, you'd only approach it if you were feeling strong that day. <laughs> That's not true of everything that he did. It's not light, but it's very beautiful and very watchable. We talked also about Derek Jarman's controversies. So why was his work seen as controversial? And Mark, can you start us off with an answer? I can, yes. I think we have to remember the context of the time that he's working, which is 
primarily the 70s and the 80s. And sure, things were very different then. Derek, I think, is seen as controversial because if we can just invoke a bit of Jungian psychology here, he's, whether consciously or unconsciously, he's very interested in the shadow, the bits of life that we push away, disavow, pretend don't exist. Of course, most obviously, as a gay man at that period, so in the 70s, you know, his sexuality has only recently been legalized, never mind accepted and far never mind embraced. So Sebastian, his first film in the mid-70s, is a really full-on celebration of gay sexuality, amongst other things. Derek very proudly said it was the first film to feature an erection and an all-male love scene. And that's for the public's perception of Derek. That's where the controversy begins. But it carries on in so many other ways. So in his next film, Jubilee, there is a really stark depiction of violence, that underside of the punk era. Moving forward about 10 years to a film called The Last of England, that is a really savage, angry critique of everything that Derek detested about the 80s, about Thatcher's Britain, about repression, about things that we might talk about shortly, like Section 28. So they're controversial in the sense that although they are funny, visually beautiful and witty and entertaining and dynamic in the way that they're made, they're not picking easy subject matter. They're going for stuff that is really going to confront you, challenge you, and as we know, even today, a lot of people don't wish to be confronted or challenged. They want to keep their heads in the sand. So I think people like Derek, certainly then and, and in some ways now, they get the label controversial, slapped on them, meaning they don't give you an easy ride in their art. And I, for one, am glad that he doesn't because whether you like or dislike a Derek Jarman film, you know that you've watched one. <laughs> you've got a lot to think about, which I think is, is wonderful because who's got time for anything less? The impressionistic delivery has made an impression, you could say. Yes. What about Caravaggio? That's a famous one. What's controversial about that one? Well, Caravaggio was made in 1985. Derek got some funding from Channel 4 for that one. So towards the end of his life, he, he does have larger budgets for his movies. Again, it's controversial in the sense that, well, again, it, it, there's some very stark depictions of violence in it. He suggests that Caravaggio was bisexual, which at that point nobody had really talked about. Also, I think the way that it is made, it's gloriously anachronistic. So it's set in the 16th century, which is when Caravaggio was around. Caravaggio, for the uninitiated, fantastic painter who was roughly contemporaneous with Shakespeare. So Derek makes this historical film, but he keeps in it these wonderfully jarring anachronisms, like having characters use calculators or that they're lit by electric lights. So he's always just kind of bringing the past into the present. And I think with any film that he does, that there's always a talking point. And I think for me, the pinnacle of that is his last film, which is called Blue, which was made right in the last year of his life. And it is literally, it's just a frame of blue, the whole film. All you see is the screen is filled with blueness and you hear voices, including Derek's, talking about his experience of dying. 
And again, it's something that you might approach and think, well, what's this? This is not like anything I'm used to or familiar with. For me, it's the greatest thing that he ever did. And it's kind of a life-changingly powerful film of enormous depth. And it perhaps completes a journey that he was going on of trying to pare down and simplify all the elements of his art, have less and less, and yet more and more depth. And he achieves it so wonderfully right at the last gasp of his life. He had that wonderful phrase, he said, I tore my last breath from the stars. You know, even at the end, he's full of life and the belief in the goodness of life. It sounds like an audio film, if there can be such a thing, where you just focus on what's being said. You just found, focus yes. on the soundtrack. For sure, but I love the fact that you keep being reminded of that by having to look at something. Yes, um, and maybe, oh, I don't know, I'm just drawing on the arts degree here, but uh, maybe the blue <laughs> is sort of drawing your eye towards the sort of imagined horizon or a, or a sky or something like that. Um, I think that is so, so true. I mean, of course, as always with Derek, you can interpret it any way you wish. One of the key aspects of his filmmaking is that he's not explaining things. He presents images and moments and invites you to construct your own meaning out of them. But I think you're not not at all wrong in perhaps interpreting what, you know, obviously blue in the sense of, you know, blue unhappy. It was It was a tremendously painful and unhappy time for him. And yet you flip the coin and it, it's horizon, it's hope, it's opportunity. And I suppose you could talk about the depths of the blue ocean as well. You know, you could be talking about getting quite deep into subject matter about Yeah, it's, about it's, life. it's all of these things, all of these things. It's, it's, mm. it's really wonderful. And if anyone listening has not seen blue, I mean, do give it a whirl or perhaps work your way towards it via other aspects of his canon because it is the it's it's the summation of everything he was trying to do yes and perhaps watch it with a friend or something as well don't yes. don't watch it on your own <laughs> um okay um so we've talked about his controversies there and we can really get a, a sense of the great depth of of Derek Jarman's work could I just say something else briefly about this sort of la this controversial label which is, it's worth noting that it wasn't just as it were the sort of cultural conservatives who he upset. Vivian Westwood was very upset by Jubilee and the way it portrayed punk because it, it portrayed it in a sort of nihilistic sort of way and she was most annoyed about it. So he, he managed to um, basically, um, he managed to get up a lot of people's noses. It wasn't just the, <laughs> yeah. uh, the usual suspect. And as Mark says, uh, you know, m maybe that's a good thing in some ways. It, it does, it's, it's, uh, it shows that there is power to the world. She's the late fashion designer who was... Uh was celebrated as this sort of avant-garde creator of clothes, wasn't she? And someone who's anti-establishment, I suppose. Yeah, I think, I think you'd, you'd normally put her in that box. Yeah, yeah. so interesting that she, <laughs> she sort of jarred a little bit with Jarman. We talked a bit about um, Section 28, Mark. You know, obviously this links into Derek Jarman's activism and campaigning and his work as a gay rights activist. So just for people who are listening um, who aren't in the UK, can you just explain what Section 28 was and why that was central to... Derek's work. Sure, and maybe for a lot of people who are in the UK, because these things are remarkably easily forgotten. Section 28 was a Thatcher government law whereby essentially what it amounted to was you weren't allowed as a teacher to refer to homosexuality in, in a school. 
you had to basically behave as if it didn't exist. You know, I, I think the phrase they used was, you're not allowed to promote it. But of course, that meant say nothing. Derek was vehemently opposed to this, along with a lot of other people. I think it was Tony Blair's government who finally repealed it. Obviously, it was a very, very damaging piece of legislation. There were two strands to gay activism around this time. There was Stonewall, the organization which was fronted by people like Michael Cashman, Ian McKellen. And then in the blue corner, you have Outrage, which is fronted by Peter Tatchell and to which Derek was closely affiliated. There was a bit of a sort of political war between these two wings. Stonewall was seen by Outrage as very collaborationist, accepting knighthoods from the establishment and things like that. Outrage, you might remember as Peter Tatchell storming into churches with a megaphone and outing bishops as they preached in the pulpit. They had very, very different approaches to how to deal with the gay rights campaign. Derek was very much more of the kind of, what are we waiting for? Let's change things now. And he was, in that sense, exceptionally brave. He was arrested as part of a sit-in in the early 90s. As he put it, I was protesting for equality and being myself in this disgraceful society, illiterate in human complexity. He was never short of a, a challenging phrase about this situation that was so dear to his heart. My favourite phrase of his is, he said, what people don't seem to understand is that sexuality is as wide as the ocean. And he was brilliant, I think, at pushing that whole agenda forward and sideways. And as always, if nothing else, really, really making you think about it and having the courage of his convictions. And I think you see that most potently with how he dealt with his HIV diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Just before we ask about the HIV diagnosis, um, could you just give us a bit more of a flavour of the work that he did as a gay rights activist? Was it writing to MPs? Was it going on marches? Uh, what sort of work did he do? It was all of the above and very, very consistently. He, you know, there are so many photos and bits of film of that era and usually standing with a placard along with everyone else is Derek Jarman. And you go, oh, there's Derek. <laughs> but I think you see it in his work as well, that certainly in his films, there are a lot of gay characters. I mean, in this regard, I think there's a wonderful comment that he made about his film, Sebastian, where he said, we appear to have made the first film that doesn't present homosexuality as a problem. And I think that was one of his biggest political acts, actually. It probably seems unbelievably tame nowadays, but in 1975, it really wasn't. And I think a lot of films and output that dared to tackle this subject prior to that, I mean, I think of perhaps um, the film Victim with Dirk Bogard, made in the 1960s. That's one of a lot of films that if they do deal with the subject of sexuality, they do it in a very, very coy way and also perhaps depict gay characters as very tragic. And I think one of Derek's big political contributions is, is not doing that, you know, reversing that and depicting characters that probably young gay people could look at and think, oh, it's, it's okay to be the way that I am. Could I just come in and say something briefly a bit more about 
section 28 because which does impacts on on what Derek did as well which is that I don't I believe that no prosecutions were actually brought under it however that's not really the point the point is the absolutely chilling effect it had on all sorts of discussions including and I know this from having I grew up at this sort of time I was coming to sort of my young adulthood at this point and I had friends who were newly trained teachers who were told they were not allowed to give any form of sex education because of the the fact there was this prohibition on discussing homosexual relations, they actually stopped talking about any of it. And the result was a bump in teenage pregnancies. So talk about the law of unintended consequences. And also, it's a really good illustration of how this isn't as such a purely a gay rights issue. It's everybody's rights. And that chimes in with what Derek would have said, I think, about the broadness of sexuality. You know, this affects absolutely everyone. And I just think that's a really important point to make. Yeah. Obviously, um, one of the great tragedies of the 80s was the AIDS crisis and, and HIV, and Derek fell victim to HIV. So, Mark, how did Derek deal with the news of getting this virus, which I think was a bit of a mystery, wasn't it, in the 80s? People didn't really completely understand it. No, they didn't. There was, you know, a huge amount of uncertainty and confusion about it. Derek got his diagnosis just before Christmas 1986. He dealt with it in a very, very unusual way for that time, which is that he immediately told everyone. (laughs) You know, we have to remember contextually that a lot of people, for perfectly understandable reasons, kept it a secret. They may not have wanted to upset people around them. I think if you were for example, working in the film industry, you might have kept it very quiet because it could have stopped you getting work or you might not have been able to get health insurance for future work. good example of that might be Anthony Perkins, who was Norman Bates in Psycho, who contracted AIDS around the same time that Derek did and kept it completely secret until he died about six years later. Another um, good comparison, I think, is Freddie Mercury, who issued a statement in 1991 that he was HIV positive and then his death was announced the next day. I'm not criticising any of those people I've just mentioned for one second, but it is a matter of record that Derek went in the other direction, as so often, and he let the media know. Knowing that that would invite a lot of criticism, he received a great deal of hate mail, a great deal of abuse in the streets, But he felt that it was so important that he let people know what was happening and try again to be a figure of inspiration for people who were in the same boat and say, well, look, okay, we are living under a death sentence, but the time we've got, we've got to use well. Tilda Swinton described what happened to Derek in this regard. She called it his epiphany, which... I'm not going to say any more about I just think I invite you to think about why she called it that. I think it's a very interesting description. And what he also did was, I mean, have, having been such a powerhouse creative force, he then went into overdrive in the, I think he had eight more, seven more years of life after the diagnosis, and he created and created. And having made a few films before the diagnosis, he made far more after because he knew he was as he said on borrowed time so this takes us into his later life and 
We've mentioned Dungeness, and this sets up his later life. So what places were important to him during that period where he's going through his final years? Well, there, there is, as you've said, Dungeness in Kent on the coast, which he bought with a legacy, I believe, in 1987, something like that. He continued to have a place in London all the time. He, at that point, he was living in Phoenix House, which is a block of flats quite prominently placed on the Charing Cross Road. And he was, he was there from, from 79. That was his London base. Something that I, I talked to Mark about when we were sort of planning uh, this, this was it's noticeable how flat landscapes seem to play a part, a very significant part in his life. There's all those places that he lived at as a child, Cambridgeshire and stuff like that, places like that where, where there's, there's a notable lack of hill. And I guess Dungeness kind of goes along with that. It's a, it's a, it's a sort of, on the surface, quite a bleak landscape, but bleak and beautiful. And this is where he created this garden of, of hardy plants, which Mark's already, already mentioned. He had this connection, as you mentioned, Howard, to London still. Why was Jarman commemorated with a blue plaque in, in London? And, and why the particular site? And also, where was this? Well, London was his major base for most of his life. As I've said already, he was, he was born in northwest London. There is a house still surviving that was actually built by his father, which is 42 Murray Road in Northwood. Uh, I'm not sure how often Derek was actually there, because I think by the time his father built that, he was actually um, away at school and university and, and so on. And he then lived sort of from the early 60s onwards in a succession of shared flats and houses, many of which still survive. Um, got 11 Whitley Court in Coram Street in Bloomsbury. He's there from 62 to 63. Number two, Healy Street in Kentish Town. Priory Road, West Hampstead, that's another one for the mid-60s. And then 60 Liverpool Road in Islington from uh, early 1967. So it was quite a job for Johanna Roerter, who actually did the address research on this case, to tabulate all of Jarman's addresses because he moved around like a lot of young people particularly those in the kind of artistic fields, moved around quite a lot, probably in search of inexpensive accommodation. But most famously, he lived in these three bankside former warehouses. And it's on one of those. It's on Butler's Wharf, 36 Shad, Thames, Bermondsey, that his plaque is. And that's really because it was just so important to the development of his art. And it, the London Thames appears in some of the short films that I've mentioned. I mean, again, very, very beautiful shots of an era of London that we'll never see again. So that's really why that was chosen. And this is, this is a place that he lived at from 73 till 79, off and on. He was, he was subletting it for a while. And as Mark said earlier on, he famously had a greenhouse inside the third floor of the warehouse, which he was able to heat and actually get a modicum of, of comfort there. So, um, yeah, that's where his blue plaque was. And because there are, say, these, these other places, these other warehouses that he also lived in that have now gone, that seemed a particularly uh, appropriate place to put the plaque. And it's also very visible to pedestrians and so on. A lot of people will see that plaque where it is. Curiously near water as well. Because it's near the river, isn't it? Near the River Thames. Yeah, and I guess that that is a that is a relevant point. I can't honestly say that that formed a major part no, of our thinking. Just, but, uh, um, just yeah, it, it certainly it fits with the theme. It does because obviously Dungeness is uh, near the sea as well, isn't it? So um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so there's this sort of blue 
blue aspect which is sort of coming through um, perhaps unintentionally i'm not not sure how blue the river thames is no but quite we'll go but, with um, <laughs> once upon a time anyway but uh, of this cottage in in dungeness what's happened to it now is it something that people can go and visit if they wanted to go on a derek jarman sort of tour it is preserved isn't it mark i think you probably know a bit more about this than i do yes as you said howard derek moves there in 1987 he's in the shadow of a nuclear power station down at Dungeness. typically contrary move he's obviously got a, a new status in his life with his hiv but he's always saying look secrecy is the real virus i'm going to be completely honest about it and anyone could go and visit him there and yeah he lived there until 1994 as we've been saying he died 30 years ago. Somebody we haven't mentioned in this discussion and really should is Keith Collins, who was Derek's, I'm going to choose my word carefully here, companion for the last seven years of Derek's life. A lot of people thought that they were partners. They weren't in the conventional sense. Keith was from Newcastle and he had a boyfriend up in Newcastle and he would spend a lot of time up there. But he was Derek's constant companion and they they had a again so typical of Derek they had a relationship that can't really be defined but it was a very 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 deep profound connection and Derek nicknamed Keith HB which was short for Hinny Beast can't really tell you why he called him that but he did and Keith lived in the cottage after Derek's death and then very sadly Keith died in 2018 he died at the same age that Derek had died that's 52 in Keith's case it was a a sudden onset brain tumor that took him away so it did then look as if Prospect Cottage was going to fall into private hands but an organization called Art Fund took on the task of, of raising the several million it was going to take to effectively buy it for the nation and just before the pandemic lockdown started, they reached their figure. Sandy Powell got lots of Hollywood stars to sign a white suit that she had made, and she auctioned that off to raise money. Lots of other people did wonderful things. And Creative Folkestone now run it, and you are able to go and look around it. You just have to book ahead, and you get 45 minutes there in groups of up to four. And again, I hugely urge people to give it a whirl because it's been kept very very much as it was in Derek's time and his spirit is hugely there. Tilda Swinton has written a little essay that you get to read when you go there and one of the standouts of that essay for me is that she talks about Prospect Cottage as being a bit like a battery charger. It's somewhere to go and reconnect with a sense of what really matters in life and perhaps where you're going if you're an artist And it's just an extraordinary experience. Every little bit of this former Victorian fisherman's hut has got some artwork on it. People might be familiar with the fact that John Donne's poem, The Sun Rising, is written on one of the outer walls. But on the inside, I mean, even the tiniest things, like there's a little door into the kitchen. It's a wooden door, but it has a tiny glass pane in it, no bigger than a postcard where you can see into the kitchen. But if you look closely, you see that Derek has hand etched one of his own poems into the glass. 
and it's a really remarkable place to go and one of the most extraordinary cultural visits I've been lucky to experience. There's a lot to reflect on there, isn't there? And to look at as well. It's always, almost art is in the whole fabric of the building and also the outside with the garden, which he tended to, I believe. Yes, the garden is, again, like nothing else you're ever going to see anywhere. That has been beautifully looked after and cultivated very much in the spirit of what Derek would like. But I just one other thought about the cottage. The first thing I saw when I went in, they, they show you into the lounge and there's one of Derek's late paintings on the wall. Derek did a, a series of paintings towards the end of his life, trying to come to terms with his impending demise. And again, it's that darker side of this otherwise outwardly very, very polite English cup of tea drinking men that Derek was as well. But yeah, I, I looked up onto the wall and there's a painting and, and in big black letters painted onto the canvas, it says the word horror. And it really sobers you up and it, it reminds you that he did go through something truly terrible. He describes it towards the end of his diaries as like living through a Holocaust in health terms. And I think what's amazing about Prospect Cottage is it, it balances that truth along with all the, the joy and the optimism. It's a very cleansing and cathartic place to visit, I think. As we sort of close out our conversation, what impact did Derek Jarman make on England and British culture more widely, would you say? Mark, if you want to start us off. Yeah, well, towards the end of his life, Derek gave an interview on the Face to Face programme, and he was asked this question himself about his legacy. And I don't know how tongue-in-cheek it was, it's hard to tell, but he said he'd quite like it if after his death all his work disappeared and, and the memory of him went. And I have puzzled over what he meant by that. I don't know if I'm right, but I my hunch is that he meant that he really wanted not to hang around as an influence, that you go and make your own thing and you're not in his shadow. I'm glad that he didn't get his wish and that we do have his work. I think for me, his legacy is the life that he lived. He lived a wildly, bravely, unconventional, different life. And at no point is he saying you have to do the same, but he's clearly saying you have to find whatever your truth is. This is mine. I wonder what yours might be. I think his gift to our culture is his work, his poetry, his prose, his autobiographical writing, his diaries, his paintings, his films, his short films, the many interviews that he gave, even when he was clearly in great pain, physical pain. And yes, he's left us this sort of half-buried treasure of inspiration. It's interesting that, you know, talking before this interview, there was an allusion to, well, I, I sort of miss Derek Jarman. I, 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 he sort of passed me by. And I, I think he did, after his death, slightly fall through the cracks and people forgot about him a little bit. And it's now that he's being rediscovered. And that's certainly my experience of him, of knowing who he was, but not having made the effort to find out more and feeling so glad that I did because it's changed my life. And I, I know because I've spoken to them that it's done and does the same for a lot of people who I'm lucky enough to talk to after the show. So yeah, those are my thoughts on his legacy. Speaking of changing lives, um, I was looking at a YouTube video before we started recording and it, it, in, it involved Toya Wilcox, who uh, 
obviously went on to do some TV presenting, but was an actress as, and a pop star as well. And she was in, she worked with Derek Jarman and interviewed him at, at one stage. And there's a comment in the uh, comment section underneath the video saying, Derek Jarman died on the 19th of February 1994 on the very same night that the gay community marched to Parliament to lower the gay age of consent down from 21 to 18. And I think that's something that uh, happened just as he was going. So there was change that he was responsible for. And um, it's just quite poignant, I think, that it coincided uh, his death and that march and then eventually the lowering of the age of consent to uh, 18 so um, I think that's quite an important point to dwell on as well and Howard what are your thoughts on Derek Jarman's legacy? I think he's important as somebody who pushed boundaries in a lot of different directions I mean he what he what he didn't do I suppose is found a, a school of filmmaking or anything like that that's certainly something he would never have sought. He he said he didn't really want to be seen as a, a film director as such. What he did do is it, it's it's a bit more um, abstract his achievement. I think he he pushed boundaries of thought and of possibilities, and I think that's that's the importance of of his uh, legacy, not just to um, Britain but to a wider world, really. Mm. Yeah, I guess the idea of that thought is very freeing, and you yeah, can explore exactly. your thoughts and explore your arts, explore yourself. Mark, you've been exploring um, your own cultural output and your own artistic self, I suppose, through your show about Derek Jarman called Jarman. Where can people see you and where can people see your show? Well, at the time of recording, I'm packing to go to Hong Kong because I'm about to do a week of shows there at the Hong Kong Cultural Centre. But probably for people listening after that, the big one is the date that we've referred to several times in this discussion, which is Monday the 19th of February this year, which is the exact date of the 30th anniversary of Derek's passing. And I'm performing my show about him at the Marleybone Theatre in London. And then after the show, Peter Tatchell is going to join me on stage and we're going to do a joint Q&A. And then for the rest of the year, I am doing it absolutely everywhere my wonderful director sarah louise young because i've made several other solo shows previously and she said i think this one is going to take you to some unusual places and she was so right so i'm doing it really as a kind of pop-up show in a bar i'm doing it in really large theaters basically everywhere from dorchester to dungeness i'm doing it in dungeness as part of the jam on the marsh festival in july so if anyone wants to catch that, all the dates are on my website, which is markfarrelly.co.uk. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're walking in the footsteps of King Offa of the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of Mercia. So imagine starting on the M5 motorway at Exeter and going up towards Birmingham, around Birmingham onto the M6 and right the way up to Stafford. That is the length of Offa's Dyke. Thanks for listening. See you next time.